though, as you state that, you've raised your arms in the air like an Olympic champion of anger. <laughs> What's wrong, spider? I, I am an Olympian. I am an Olympian. <laughs> yeah, you are. Breaking records, setting goals. You think you're angry? Come race, Lauren Silver. You wait. She'll give you a run for your fucking money and then she'll punch you in the face. <laughs> That's what I do at the end. I get to the very end, I'm much quicker than you, and then I wait for you at the, on the finish line to fucking punch you in the face. This sounds like less like a kind of beginning of pure feeling of anger and more like a long-standing, burning, revengeful uh, bitterness. Is it, isn't that how everyone's anger is? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's what we're learning. I don't know if I... Do you know what? It's interesting because I don't know if I would say... Would I say my anger is bitterness? What would I be bitter at? Maybe <laughs> at being a sports person. I'm not a... If my sports skill, because I'm not a sporty person at all, but if my sports... Sports skill, is that what they say? If my sports Sport. skill, my chosen sports yeah, skill... that's what they say. When you register for the Olympics, they say, please tick the box. Which level of sports skill are you? Good, very good. Fucking Olympian. <laughs> I would say I'm a fucking Olympian at anger. I think I practice every day. <laughs> I do more than 10 minutes. Do you have a little stretch first? Do you limber yeah. up or is that after? It's like do a cool what? down. Sometimes I just like to just, I think a cool down is necessary. But, um, you know, some days I'm really good at it. Some days not so good. Today's, no, I'm always great. I'm a natural born Killer. Killer. <laughs> <laughs> so we were like, I said, we're going to record at quarter past. I really don't like being late for things, but I often, um, a couple of minutes late for Zoom stuff like this, because <laughs> logistically, like I'll get sucked into something and then be like, oh my God, I've got two minutes to go. And before then I had 10 minutes, so I had plenty of time. So like that weird portal that I go into when I always lose about seven minutes that's seven minutes it's gone so I was like busy typing up all our biog stuff and then I was like fuck okay got the microphone to plug in and one of my usb ports doesn't work it was telling me to do all these like shortcuts a normal person would be like don't do the shortcuts now leave it find a way to make it work but I was like I'm going to choose and then <laughs> I choose to get everything done in four minutes because that has been a choice that I've made. So I'm crossing myself. Then Thames Water are here and they've just turned our water off. Why? Dunno! <laughs> just You're not allowed any more water from the Thames. You've had enough. <laughs> Listen, other people need that. That's for the whole of London and beyond. <laughs> Put that glass down. Turn that tap off. <laughs> We're cutting you off. That's it. You've had too much. Yeah, you need to sit down and think about what you've done. <laughs> Thames water and the new police. Uh, Are you having more work done? No, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Are we on season one again? (laughs) (laughs) Season one intro format. Moan about technology. (laughs) Moan about all the work. (laughs) And here we are back again. No, it wasn't a choice. Although, although, this morning I sent a text to our neighbour and friend. Julie, to say, <laughs> saying another white man in a shiny car has turned up outside our house. <laughs> like, that's all they are. They're, they're all the same white men in ill-fitting shirts with shiny cars turning up, pulling into our path to do something fucking annoying. This time he had a big camera and just started taking pictures outside our house. So what I, the fuck is going I on? I don't know. We don't know. It's probably some boring structural thing we're not allowed to talk about in series two. But he was taking photos of the outside of the building, so I was just waving at the window. <laughs> so I was like, listen, at least let me just have some joy. You know, it's like when you find yourself on Google Maps. Oh, yeah. Well, did we tell you that if you search our flat I might post this picture actually if you search the address of my flat you'll see a crumbling building (laughs) with a shiny white man outside but Wally is in the window of our Google photo he's at the window with his head on the window sill isn't that so so sweet that's so nice I used to be in one of the ones on in of Liverpool Hmm. I used to be on how do you know because they think I used to be on Duke Street they block your face out yeah they like like I'm quite recognizable (laughs) aside from my face you were, you've got you had a t-shirt with your face on it just to yeah it. yeah block this fuckers <laughs> i carry in a tall stick as well with my face on top of that got my face on my bag every time i 
press my shoes on the wet ground. There's an imprint of my face. <laughs> Such a fucking narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> but we know it's her. It's unmistakable. You can see me from space. <laughs> Who's the winner now? Me. <laughs> Google. Thank you. Who needs to be real world famous when you can be Google Maps famous? Oh my god, that's really made me laugh. <laughs> oh, all right, Helen. Here we are announcing episode one of season two. <laughs> very exciting. I'm very excited to be back. Yeah. Who is our first guest? Well, we're really, really excited and thrilled to be starting this season with a phenomenal guest. We've got Rachel Paris on today's episode. Rachel Paris is a BAFTA-nominated comedian, musician, actor and improviser, best known for her viral segments on BBC Two's The Mash Report. <laughs> did you start like you going? Yeah, did you pause for dramatic effect? <laughs> no, I was going to give you the option. Oh, thanks. Like, oh, yeah, like, should we alternate? I like it. Okay. <laughs> she has appeared on Live at the Apollo, Mot the Week, QI, Would I Lie to You, and Hypothetical. Uh, she's also a founding member of the award winning improv comedy smash hit Ostentatious, an Edinburgh Fringe sellout show. UK tour sellout with a residency in London's West End and has been broadcast on BBC Radio 4. Here's Rachel. So you were saying that you are in a full house of people now. Yeah. And are you doing the homeschooling as well? Well, at, at their age, so because my stepkids are 18 and 15, the homeschooling that me and my husband can offer is very <laughs> rudimentary. Of course, we don't understand anything that they're studying at school. One of them's doing GCSEs, so, you know, physics, chemistry, no. maths. Um, I don't know any of that. So there is, a, there is a limited amount that we can help. I think all we can do is support and give them space. Do you get the feeling that this lockdown, I was really feeling at the beginning of this year, super lethargic and just like knocked on my ass, basically. And it was weird. And like, I've been I've been thinking about why that is, because it's like, obviously, we've been through nearly a full year of this, the thing that you're supposed to be used to by now. And I'm almost getting this feeling that we're supposed to be like, back on it, back to it and like adapted fully, you know, and it's for some reason, this one, has been the hardest one, and I don't know why. Yeah, why hasn't that happened? Why aren't we used to it? Like, you're you're right, I totally thought, I'd be like, oh, we have got this, we've done it, we did it for months, and this time feels really hard, even though it's almost exactly the same situation, there's just less sun. But I do think, I think that's part of it, you know. When lockdown happened before, we sat outside our house where there's not a garden there's a small space but it was march but it's bright bright sunshine enough to get burned weirdly mm. and we sat there in our shorts sweating into our fold-out chairs with our pet lizard crawling around like weird sort of british uh <laughs> white trash <laughs> like no one else no one else on the street people walk and, past you and be like oh, go back in why have you got a lizard but um this time around you really it feels much more indoors like yeah trapped yeah than before i wonder that last year was we were so filled with you know the stages of grief that was the fear and the and the panic and the denial yes and then there's always that bit of the, the grieving process, which is the hope bit that things will get better. Yeah. And now we've sort of hit the next stage of, especially within creatives, where our jobs haven't just been transported to a different room. We had like dangling carrots of hope of we're going to maybe be back in a theatre again and then snatched that all away. So it's like those adrenaline hits. We're constantly having that snatched. That's exactly it. It's not like if we've just been locked down with a clear deadline for this long, it would be awful, but we'd know what we were facing. Yeah. But I think that any psychologist would say that what's happened as a nation has been torturous <laughs> and psychologically yeah. cruel. That they're like, oh, you might have Christmas. No, no, you don't. Hey, you can go to cafes for a week. You should go to restaurants for a month. Yeah. Now yeah. you can't go anywhere. Like the the teasing of it has been so difficult, I think. And I think you're right with work that we even I had a gig in the Oxford Playhouse not with an audience but like you know how when it's one season you can't imagine the weather of the other season existing yeah. I cannot believe that a few months ago I got to perform on a stage in yeah. another town that that was legal 
and I did it. I can't even Mm. imagine it. I think the reason why I'm finding this difficult is because I'm having conversations about potential things that might happen this year with like 12 different options, one yeah. of which is like, it just doesn't happen. Um, yeah. It's not 12, there's like three. It does happen or it doesn't happen or maybe it kind of happens. Yeah. But um, I feel like I've got loads of balloons and I'm just trying to tether something down and I'm floating a bit as well. And we're constantly trying to pull ourselves down to ground ourselves, but we don't have anything that's solidifying our day-to-day or our week-to-week. And as people who are freelancers who like to have a bit of an idea of what's going to happen in the next few months, we're not even allowed to do that. So I think that mentally is so exhausting for us as well to go, I can't even tether, tie that thing down to a to a weight and go, that's going to stay here. I think the most disconcerting moment in the last few weeks has been the announcement of lockdown from Boris Johnson, where I didn't even feel angry at him for the first time in my life. <laughs> like the the anchoring power of feeling furious at Boris yeah. Johnson is a moment of like comfort and reassurance because it's so deserved and we all feel it. And when he did that announcement and we'd all been thinking, of course he should have done it earlier, but there's now no other option. Like, And I watched it and I was like, I'm not even angry at Boris. What is my life? <laughs> What do I have? I've been like that a bit with all of it. You know, watching this crazy stuff happening and and I'm like it's almost like I'm just I'm just detached from everything mm. in some ways. But I think that idea of rage as a grounding force, if you can tap into the feeling that, okay, I'm not okay about this. Yeah. Uh, and this takes the piss or whatever, then it's like you're able to react and respond to what's happening around you as if you're involved. <laughs> or yeah, as it, yeah. As if it matters. And somehow when that goes, it is interesting to think that's one of the things that we get from our rage, from our anger is a kind of is a grounding force. And that's that so is, important yeah. right now for people, you know, where everything is so up and And that it was mm. it was a community spirit of anger as well i know that not everyone feels that way about the government but nearly everyone i know (laughs) does so that was something that you could share together and don't get me wrong it's back but um so literally one day but that fury at the handling of this and other governmental decisions that have happened over the last year is something that you can share together so yeah it can Mm. be can be a uniting thing anger yeah Mm. definitely shall we play our game yeah and then we'll dive in yeah so let's get to know your rage a bit more and (laughs) we'll count you in and you quick fire respond which way around is it one is it eight is the we'll start with one (laughs) what i mean is <laughs> what I mean is, is it in order of how angry you are? No, no. Just random. Oh, that anything? would be very difficult. <laughs> Helen, is it a bit like that improv game Eight Things, where you just think <laughs> yeah, about yeah, yeah. the category? And funnily gotcha. enough, Rachel, it's exactly, <laughs> exactly like that one. <laughs> the shit show that how I normally play that game. <laughs> Rachel Paris, are you ready? Yes. <laughs> Yes, that was like a game show, yes. I'm going to win. I'm ready. Okay, Helen, you're better at counting than me. (laughs) Thing number one. People who block your way walking slowly. Thing number two. People saying things on Twitter that they don't even mean to get a reaction. (laughs) Thing number three. My hair as I get older. (laughs) (laughs) Thing number four. False adverts for eyebrow products that when you get them actually are an orange (laughs) shade. And what is that? No one's got orange eyebrows. What are you up to? (laughs) Thing number number five. five. Frankly, men, not all men, in power of uh, big shows who uh, doubt women. Ah, yes. Oh, yeah. Mm. Number six. Um, the Tory government of the moment. Yeah. Big number seven. Um, <laughs> so hard. <laughs> uh, there's so many things. Mislabeled sizing on clothing. Oh, yes. <gasps> yeah. And thing final num- one. Thing number eight. Plastic surgeons who give surgery to people who quite clearly have a psychological problem. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. What? No one expected that to be on my list. Where did that come from? That's what happens when you play this game. You come up with things that I've... I've like, when did I last think about that? <laughs> That's the beauty of the game. This is a great list, Rachel. Well done. Thank you. I feel like instantly drawn to a couple of these. Don't know about you. Yeah, go for it. I think I'm immediately drawn to men in power of big shows who doubt women. And I'm quite sure that that's something that you've probably had to deal with a lot. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, could you talk a bit about, well, whatever you want, really? Yeah, like, it's incredibly common uh, across a, a lot of production. And what gets talked about, I think, in terms of gender equality in comedy is the on-screen talent, which is already a problem in terms of the fact that even though shows are getting female guests more and they have, like, one black person and one gay person in a two-week block, still it's often men hosting in fact always literally all of them all the programs and that actually it's more useful to look at the production who is producing those shows who's making those choices who's leading them and and some of those programs that have been on have been male-led behind the scenes for 30 years and that affects the the whole tone of the show it affects not only who they book but the attitude to who they book so you know there are shows on the BBC that will book female guests but won't give them the stand-up slot because they find it too hard to believe that a woman can do stand-up. Personal, personal experience. Um, I've had a meeting with an exec producer of one of those shows where he said, but you're really an improviser, aren't you? Not a stand-up. And I said, I am both. <laughs> I've been doing improv for 10 years. I've been doing stand-up for 10 years, but yeah. I make my career doing stand-up. And he went, mm, are you talking about showstoppers? And I said, no, I'm not even in showstoppers. <laughs> I'm so nice. Uh, I'm in another group called Authentatious, but I'm talking about my stand-up career. I'm currently on a UK tour with my stand-up career. And he went, mm. <laughs> he did that thing where someone literally doesn't believe you. Are you though? Are you? It's so easy to Google you. <laughs> I know. And you know, I had, I had my luggage with me and he caught, at the end of the meeting, he went, what's that all about? And I went, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm going on tour. <laughs> this is in the middle on of On holiday, tour. Rachel, you're just going on holiday. <laughs> it frustrates me so much. And I think there's, there's still, still now when, for example, Mock the Week announced a lineup with a brilliantly diverse group of new guests for the last series. Again, it's always the guests, both, never the anchors. And even then, people on Twitter going, Oh, not a single white straight man among them. When will white straight men get a chance? Non-ironically, honestly, honestly, people saying that, ignoring the fact that all of the three main people on that show, every show, (laughs) are straight white men. And it's so difficult to have this conversation because I don't like repeating the phrase straight white men because it shouldn't be that black and white you know but at the same time when there is such a trend like that it is really hard to ignore and it's quite astonishing after everything that's happened in the last few years that that hasn't yet changed well there's the subjects around we don't like it to be about tokenism and we don't want it then to be about throwing a couple of people in there just you know tick those boxes but definitely over christmas watching a lot of the panel shows where in my house we'll say it's not a single person of color or black person on the panel only because of the conversations we've had this year are those conversations happening more but I know the most recent controversy that came about there was a panel show where it was um, all male comedians and then the two women were TV celebrities they weren't comedians so the only two women on the panel weren't stand-ups or people that work in comedy that particular show has a habit of doing that and many others do obviously many entertainment shows do that's been going for 10 years that tradition of having six male comedians and two women who are presenters primarily and it's it's again it's quite difficult to argue because people go, oh, are you saying that women who aren't comedians can't be funny? And it's like, no, we're not saying that at all. But I note that you haven't booked Philip Schofield. You know, you haven't booked a male presenter who isn't a comedian. Because there's so clearly a divide between who's meant to look very nice and laugh at the men's jokes. I don't mean to be reductive about those women. They're really naturally funny, brilliant, entertaining women who happen to be very beautiful. But in the edit. I've had it done to me. I've had it done to me where they just do an edit of them laughing at men's jokes. It makes me think about not feeling trusted as yeah. on the panel as much as the men on the panel. You know, one of these particular women that we're on is is she is really funny. Yeah. But but it is her level is very reactive as opposed to active yeah. comedy. So she yes. will react to what's happening around her, exactly. around them on that panel. Whereas if you had a couple of stand-up that were women on there, they're active in their comedy and they control that space as much as the men would. So that's why I find it so interesting that it, it's the women are the funny sort of lovely celebrity women are there to be reactive to the men and nothing yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. And I would say as well, when they do book women on any panel show, if there's not a tradition of it and the woman is the only woman or even one of two out of eight 
you know, one of two out of six, like those shows are so hard to excel in. If it's your first time in that environment, surrounded by seven men who have been working on that show as close friends for 10 years, it's really hard to prove yourself, to prove your place there. So people tune in, they're like, oh, they've put a woman on it. Let's see how she gets on. She was shit compared to them. <laughs> the chances of you being a bit shitter on your first time, surrounded by people who know each other and you can't get a word in, you're not as experienced, it's then confirmed, you know, in the head, like, we tried a woman, it was a mistake. Because of the weird nature of how I sort of had a sudden injection of success uh, in 2018, I ended up doing all the panel shows very suddenly in a year and with really no time to learn uh, between. And one thing I did learn, I was like, I can't hear very well what you're all shouting across like in the studio it's very hard to differentiate like who's saying what I can't be heard loads of times I said something and it's even you can see it in some of the edits like I said something it's literally talked over they can't hear me so I, I said in my second panel show please can you turn my microphone up I had a booster seat for a lot of the week so that I wasn't sat low behind a desk designed for men hello Caroline wow. Fiado Perez the whole format, I think, of these panel shows is designed for men yeah. uh, in, in a variety of different ways. I know that all men and women are different, but I do think on an average, the loudness that's required to literally get your jokes heard, the combative nature, I don't find them as collaborative uh, as a programme as, as, as I wish people would make. Mm. And while they keep commissioning the same show for decades hosted by the same people there's no room in the airways for people to create a show that would embrace a genuinely diverse host captains and ethos yeah and if your like panel show comedy is a real different type of comedy altogether stand-up is very solitary so you don't generally it's you in the audience most of the time so your your role is you understand where you're sat and you can see when an improviser is on a panel show where you're like Oh, that's lovely because <laughs> they're just supporting everyone, but they'll never get a say because they're. Yeah. Do you, you know, know what not... show I love that's a new one? Hypothetical. James Acaster and um, Alex Horn and yeah. um, two white men. But what they've created there, I think, is such a good antidote to that, which is every guest that they have. And what a great guest list they have. <laughs> not to say I was on it, but like, <laughs> apart from me, it genuinely was a lovely guest list of a lot of improvisers deliberately and they gave the guest a chance to shine they go this is your moment no one's gonna talk over you no one's gonna try and put a line on the end of mm. your joke uh no one's trying to steal it like this is this is for you to do whatever whatever you want with mm. and it's so rare in comedy tv for that to happen it's so so nice when the executive director chatted to you about this situation and you were sat there where does that feeling where does that emotion sit for you how do you respond is it then in the moment is it later on you know at the time I was like this is quite funny um it's like quite a cliche of what people do to female comedians but but those cliches, I think people think that they're a funny anecdote that you hear. Those cliches happen every day uh, and it starts to get less funny after a while. So the anger comes later because in th- actually uh, the anger comes because in that moment you're being given a chance. It's not the complete chance that you want, you know, mm. but um, you'll be given a chance. But I think it's how conditional those chances are for any of the people who aren't the normal people, the, the absolute target person booked on those shows they give you a chance but it's conditional it's a one-off or a two-off and it's fleeting I think then as well you get so defensive about that that then going into other projects you have to you go in fighting your corner Mm. from the start Mm. and that can lead to uh, I think I think in certain places I've had like a reputation for being quite a hard ass uh, in the in wanting to protect what I'm able to say that made me so angry and Mm. I've been treated like often like like a diva for simply wanting to own my own voice is how it felt and how frustrating is that that you would even call yourself a hard ass or to be a diva or whatever these names are given to be simply saying hold on a second I don't think that's really the right thing and actually I would just like to be treated the same way you're battling two things there of not wanting to piss anybody off so that people don't go, we won't book her because she's difficult and we'll get somebody else who'll be really happy to do it. But also protecting 
just protecting yourself, not even career-wise, just yourself from the onslaught of things that might happen should you step forward and say something. And then people go, well, you said it, Rachel. Exactly. It's very difficult. I think it's, you feel like saying to people, don't you think I would rather have an easy life? Everyone wants an easy life. Everyone just wants to go, yeah, that's great. That's fine. Yeah, lovely. That sounds great. Everyone wants that. So this must be important enough if I'm bothering to pursue it. It's so important, yeah. I think. And it is some, and it is gendered because in, in a lot of these situations, it has not been a situation that the male comedians have found themselves in. Yeah. And so you are behaving differently because you're having to. You're having to push for your rights in a way that those rights aren't being taken away from the men around you. Mm. Having to, you know, it's, it's frustrating. And it's also, of course, something you, you can't talk about completely openly because you want those jobs. How kind of conscious and aware does this make you of like how you need to conduct yourself or how you can or can't express the way that you feel in certain settings? Because I think, I feel like what I respond to is people kind of saying, well, it's professionalism and you have to be professional and it's a professional environment. Like, obviously, you're not going to fly off the handle and throw a chair at someone. But I don't think it's unprofessional to stand up for yourself when you're being wronged. And yet, it's quite often seen that way. It's just about being in these situations where you have to stand up for yourself and you want to stand up for yourself, but, but seeing how that's taken. How aware are you of the extra work that you need to do to be able to rise above it? conversationally and still get what you need I think you do I think you know what and that you know what you're doing you know I I've definitely in communications you grab onto the moments where you don't have to fight for something and you're like hello I love this um this is absolutely brilliant thank you so much uh for this so enthusiastic because you have you feel like you have to edge carefully into the bit that that you do have to argue about and it's so complicated because for me often when I get really angry it goes one of two ways either I am icy cold or I burst into tears both of those don't get a great result they both make people feel uncomfortable in different ways and I've burst into tears uh, in a commissioner's office before um I've burst into tears in very big creep show production meetings uh, immediately before going on camera <laughs> um, and it's from a feeling of uh, powerlessness. You feel powerless in that yeah. moment. And it scares people and freaks people out sometimes. Um, but that's something when you lose the power of communication that feels really scary. You're like, this is not, please don't cry right now because yeah. this is not part of my communication plan. <laughs> I had uh, just in terms of public reaction to some of the things that came out from, for example, the MASH report, there's a, a couple of the clips that I was really worried about putting out. Um, And this is more towards the start of the MASH report, uh, where I think I was still quite bright-eyed and kind of like, sure. Um, uh, uh, And it's such a a difficult balance between being grateful for what you're being handed. It changed my career. Those, Those bits at the beginning changed my career. But also... I felt like I was completely unprepared for what came, which was a worldwide onslaught of controversy, uh, which didn't last forever, but it did last for a few weeks and months and very intensely for a few weeks. And uh, it involved, you know, your family are involved, their friend. If you're if you're slagging off, you know, a a certain group of people, people who voted for Brexit, people who are... Tories, then your family are embarrassed and hurt by it. It's very personal. And all across this, people are going, isn't this exciting? This is so brilliant. You must be so excited. Isn't it exciting? And I just kept replying to people going, sure, sure. Um, I'm terrified. I'm absolutely terrified. I feel like you're, you know, the style that you that you came to for those reports. I don't know that you could have been more nice. And and I just wonder in terms of like what you think that we can get away with, even if you're not being political, even if you're doing something in your own stand up or on your tour or in a show that you're directly writing for yourself. Do you feel like that you have to do things in particular ways or that you wouldn't do something because of this kind of backlash response? Um, I think that I can't tell how I change it because I think I just do it how I do it. I don't feel like performative wise that I would do anything different to what I do, whether that's on TV or whether it's in my stand-up shows. There's not a huge difference. I think I do have a persona 
that is uh, very related to who I am normally, but heightened. And I do think there are advantages to personas like that. There are advantages to saying things um, as a woman instead of a man. There are advantages to saying things things as innocuous as like, if you're a short person, something you say will come across differently to a tall person Mm -hmm. saying it. All these things do make a difference with how people take what you're saying. And I do feel like we were able, we as a team, were able to get stuff across the line uh, at the BBC through using what we had. (laughs) What we had was a really smiley sunny looking blonde girl yeah. being very being quite polite, polite. Yeah. yeah and we were able to say things that we wouldn't otherwise get away with i did a radio 4 series at not political uh, about jane austen a few weeks ago and i had swear words in it which obviously radio 4 really clamped down on uh, i had the word twat in it a couple of times they wouldn't let me say fuck boys but <laughs> twat normally would be a big no-no for radio 4 and they applied and the um, people came back and they said in this case we feel that rachel paris has such a what did they say um charming politeness <laughs> a gentle tone or something like that that we feel that it won't be offensive to people when she says twat. See, it's so your literally, twat. you are using what you have to get get away with things. That's your superpower then. It's like, how many fuckboys and twats can we get through the BBC? So Rachel Barrow's in. It is. And let's be clear, as well, it, it is white privilege. You are a, a nice, neat, nicely spoken, blonde white girl. Uh, it's it's less offensive for you to say twat. So I do think it's, it's not... It's not all equal, but you take advantages where you can find them. So would you say there's also truth in it being easier to direct anger at you, Rachel, on MASH Report? Because I'm so fascinated that there's a level of going, we can get away with a lot of this stuff because the person that we choose to do it will be able to fit through the gaps of the things we're not normally allowed to say or talk about. Not in a way that you're unaware of the repercussions, but the character is almost just uncensored. And I imagine Nish got, for being a brown person on a TV show, his abuse. own abuse. So much abuse. So I wonder, is there then more unspoken permission in some ways to direct that anger and rage at somebody who seems quite unfazed by the response? It is. I honestly don't know, to be honest. Mm. Um, I think that there will always be people who hate women, uh, just as there will always be people who hate brown people. And so there's a section mm. of abuse that's for Nish and there's a section of abuse that's for me which will really not hugely change depending on what we say. Uh, It's simply, we're on TV, we're talking about politics, and you're a woman, hashtag, or you're brown. And that's quite unchanging. Um, But what I don't, what I'm not sure of is what that persona, if that caused a divide between like, there were people who hated it. There were loads of people who were like, I hate this patronising woman. Uh, I don't know if they knew it was a character but to be honest it doesn't matter if they knew it was a character because if you hate a character you you hate a character but I I don't know if the reaction would have been different uh if I'd been like slightly straighter Mm. less kind of like giddy smiley person uh on the show I'm not sure be Mm. interesting what you said about the tears part of getting angry that made me think about how anger and rage is always from what we can understand like a secondary I guess the second emotion underneath what your first emotion is in those situations so not everybody gets angry in a way that's screaming shouting Helen said like throw in a chair great lovely some are yeah but there's also what are the first emotions then that come to mind for you where do you think the other emotions come from yeah that's re- that's really interesting it definitely it depends on your upbringing and for me I come from a family who were very rarely open in anger and I have very little outlet for anger that is I never I never shout I literally never shout in that situation I sort of wish I knew how to because it would be much clearer uh, in terms of showing how I feel than what I tend to do which is kind of a panic stations control everything and I try to state my case in an incredibly cool wordy way or in a relationship as my husband will attest I just can't talk I just can't I just first of all I try and talk 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 and then if they don't respond how I want I just I'm a bit like I'm just if I'm that angry I just find it very hard to have conversations um I'm constantly on the edge of tears so I feel I don't know I feel like it's probably much healthier to have that more traditional anger place which is 
yeah, being physically mm. angry, punching a pillow, have punched pillows, but like yeah. shouting yeah. and showing your anger in a more traditional way. Rarely are we taught in, in any circumstance, especially as women, and it is so ingrained back in when we're children and what children are told and how we're, you yeah. know, um, if a child comes over and like you're building a tower when you're at nursery and a kid like comes and like smacks the tower down. I bit somebody when I was little. <laughs> not knowing where to put that and where to channel that yes in theory we'd all like to scream and shout and we'd all like to punch things and but also not being told or taught that this is the um this is the outlet that you have in a healthy way we all adapt so you're finding your own ways of adapting how your anger is and so interesting that it's words for you it's to be it's to be able to articulate exactly how you feel in that moment or nothing yeah I feel like I'm the very similar way, actually, as well, because it becomes so important to articulate yourself. And and it's interesting, I think, as well, just on top of that, that not only might we not learn, because I, I think I have a very similar relationship to Rage of just not being able to do those things for a very long time. And I think what's interesting is if we don't learn how to be angry or how to or how to have anger, it's not only from our perspective, but it also feels like that society at large has been taught that women don't we get different things attributed to us in general like being a nag or being controlling or being crazy bitch (laughs) where there is no space to perceive a woman's anger and to hear it and to listen and to understand that that feeling is intense and it matters and it's about something important you know it's it's not just within women it's the society at large that then also backs that up by by being genuinely confused when faced with a woman's anger as to be like what's wrong with you you know what I mean like that's so unhelpful yeah yeah I I definitely <laughs> what I do is because is I, I think that wording things in a very constructive and reasonable way uh, and being quite articulate about how I feel is uh, my strength And I always feel like, because obviously in any argument, you think you're right. So I always feel like all I have to do is explain my point of view clearly. And what (laughs) I cannot ever fathom is that when I have done that successfully, that they don't just agree. (laughs) And I'm like, I have nowhere to go with this. Like, how can you hear what I just said so well (laughs) and not agree with it? Like, my mind's blown that you can't agree (laughs) Do you ever get this thing where you, because I've had this before, which is just, I don't know, this is just an experience that I personally find incredibly infuriating, where I have articulated something so brilliantly. And you know, like, you know, as you're saying it, you're like so proud of yourself. You're like controlling your feelings and you're like speaking in this way. You're like, you know that each word you choose is actually perfect and that you could not have said this clearer. And then the person speaks back to you as if you've said something completely different. Like, like (laughs) so much, like doesn't only just disagree with you but seems to have completely 180 degrees misunderstood what it is you yeah. you're even trying to say and you're just like how is that possible I the words I said were, were a perfect expression <laughs> you're like listen can I just rewind and replay you <laughs> what I said before because it's very evident to me that you didn't listen yeah, properly yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that always been a way for you to deal with being angry even when you know when you were younger were you always as considered I can't really remember. I think that I'm trying to remember how angry I was as a child. I think not that angry. I think I, I think I had a pretty nice childhood. So I don't think I was that angry a lot of the time. Um, and I think I can see I was reading an old notebook, actually, about some friends writing in class at school and teenage diaries, like I got angry at uh, certain friends in certain situations. I think I was even then looking at these notes, <laughs> quite, quite articulate in saying what I was angry about. Uh, and, and it works, but I think it, I think you have to know the power of what that does, actually. I think it can be much scarier than shouting and more annoying. I think it can be more aggravating in an argument for someone to go really articulate on you than to simply show that they're upset. And I, I think that's something I'm still learning, certainly in relationships, to go, no, I'm really sad or I'm really angry or I'm really upset right now, rather than going, let me explain one by one, point one. This is this is happening. Uh, I think that cannot always achieve what you think it's going to achieve. Why do you think that is? Is that just because that brings a level of patronisation to the equation from the other person's perspective? Or do you, like, I don't know, why do you think that is? I think just because it's always about something that is bound to be emotional even if it's a discussion of logistics it's about the emotion of how you feel about those logistics and 
So if you're not showing how you feel, to, to your mind you are, but to them they don't recognise that this is what your anger looks like, then they think that all you're doing is trying to win an argument. Yeah. But actually it's more than that. What you're actually trying to do is show them how you feel. That's really interesting. And so oftentimes what you get back is a counter argument and you're just like, why am I in this fucking debate? Like I'm trying to express my deepest feeling to you in a way that that you hear it and you just you're just taking the counter argument every time and maybe that's part of that is sounding like we're debating do you think there's an element of uh, feeling safe in a relationship a for a person to feel safe to express their emotions but also maybe there is a counter thing if if you're not able to do that to go there or if that's something that's tricky that may be that the other person in the relationship picks up that you're not expressing that with them you're not safe with them yeah. there is something weird that they can't put their finger on don't you get angry do you get this I get very angry when mm. I feel that I'm not being read mm. correctly in what I think is quite an easy read yeah. so like even even a few weeks ago like me and my husband had a big row but it was about a very emotional subject it's been a very difficult year for us um and it's brought up not so much towards my husband but lots of different issues I had um, a late miscarriage mm. in September and it was like something I've I've never experienced those emotions before. I've, you know, I don't think I've had a death that close to me that affected me in such a deeply physical way. You know, giving birth, you gave birth, and and you know, losing a baby in that way is something that I've, for one thing, I've never imagined. You know, hardly knew that that was a thing that happened. It's totally unprepared for, and it's such a unusual and quite horror, horror, <laughs> horrifying situation that. There's such an emotional process to go through. And in actually in the immediate month around leading up to and leading away from that, the emotions of it are really obvious because it's just tragic and it's easy. The emotions of that are so easy. Everyone's so sorry. Everyone's so sad. You're so sad. And there's no effort involved there. It's so easy. And it's more in the months afterwards as, as everyone's healing at different rates and in different ways and everyone has different triggers for what feels painful and that's been such a hard thing to negotiate in terms of anger and there was a day recently where I just there was a very obvious what was to me a very obvious trigger and I just half brought it up and then went very quiet and to me it was so obvious that I was so sad I wasn't crying but I was quiet and to me, it was like, why? We got into like a verbal argument. And I was like, why are we having a verbal argument? Why isn't it obvious? Why can't you read this? And I think in any relationship, that is such a universal thing of feeling so betrayed when someone can't read you. And for them, it's like a trick. They're like, it's not my fault. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that's how you were feeling. But to you, you're like, I've given you I've given you what I think are really clear signs that I'm heartbroken right now and negotiating that is 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 such is such a difficult thing and the anger I have about losing the baby manifests in such different ways and like you said earlier in the show you said it's anger is often a secondary emotion and in this case it really has been like just tragedy and sadness were the immediate emotions um and then anger I don't know when it will end like every time I see people talking in a casual way about pregnancy and childbirth. Every time I see people, <laughs> as I see it being, um, not being cautious about their own hope <laughs> and talking to women who, who don't have children or who have children and you don't know what their situation is. You, like, I feel angry just about things that there's nothing to feel angry about, about other people having babies when I haven't got mine. And it's there and it's not always fair it's not always fair and it's not it's not it's not a great feeling that's not something you're united in and you're not even united with the rest of your family in it because I think it's something that is only you who carried that baby who gave birth to it that only you can I think it's quite niche yeah there's so many internal battles that you deal with your own personal battle of why am I still feeling the way that you're feeling however long in situations where there's a loss? At what point do we feel lighter, more tolerant to just everyone? The frustration of not knowing how you can fix how you feel. If you're able to have the vocabulary to articulate, if you have therapy anyway, 
I got told in therapy that I'm not going to be good at therapy all the time. And that frustrates me because I really want to be good at it because I do the reading and I do the work. And why aren't I doing, why aren't I doing good in therapy and winning therapy today? Those things of going, I know how to articulate myself. So why can't I articulate how I feel right now? Why don't the other people around me understand? Why don't they know how I feel? Why don't don't they get? Unless you have to keep saying, you wake up each morning and you go, Hi, good morning, everyone. I'm still sad about the thing that happened. So, you know, the secondary emotion, the frustration, the recognition of I'm frustrated, you know, you're told to allow yourself to let those feelings happen. And then also, I wonder with you, I'm not pregnant, I've not been pregnant, but I have got very frustrated at baby showers. Yeah. Really angry in a baby shower because I've dealt with death anxiety forever. So I sit at baby showers and go, how are you happily holding up the baby clothes and being all okay when something might go wrong? And how can we just throw our caution to the wind? And I I feel very guilty about that. And I get very cross at myself, which feels like it's transferred outwards to the other people. There is also people being more sensitive to losing a baby and those conversations are happening more because more people are talking about the fact they lost a baby or they miscarried. I think that's true and I I feel exactly the same as you. I feel guilty for thinking it but I do now, perhaps I always will, feel very worried for pregnant women. (laughs) Like Mm. literally all the way through I feel very worried. Um, It was absolutely heartbreaking after we lost ours to see you know Chrissy Teigen posted uh she got to the safe mark and posted um I'm pregnant all over social media because um she's a glorious social media person she shares all her life and it's lovely and I followed her anyway and when she posted that she was pregnant my immediate feeling was oh god I hope I hope she's okay Mm. and then of course she continued to post as it went downhill and it went downhill in exactly the same way. Mm. What happened to her was exactly what happened to us. And that was a manifestation of all the fears that I have mm. for the women around me. Um, and I, I think in terms of anger and frustration, I think there's groups of situations that people forget, which is a lot of my friends are at an age where like, Losing losing a baby, having a miscarriage, anything like that, is such a clear focus. It happened on a day. There was a lead up to it. You were in hospital. People send cards and flowers. But for people who wanted to have children and it just hasn't come about because of circumstance, uh, because their partner didn't want to, because they couldn't, like, there's so many different reasons that, that aren't always obvious, that aren't picked up on. And you can't always delve into it. But I think that it's always safe to assume that there might be a sadness there. I don't mean I don't mean that it's safe to assume there is a sadness mm. there. I mean it's you might as well err on the edge of caution. And that they've got no I know this from having conversations with my friends this year, that there's no focus there to say your photo of your newborn baby makes me incredibly sad that I am not gonna have one and I'm coming to terms with that right now but there's no occasion for it and I I really feel like that's a a gap in the societal sympathy that we have around that subject that there's so many people who circumstances fucked them and they're not getting cards basically Mm. um so yeah complicated yeah yeah and you know like you said Lauren those conversations are happening more and people are I think very courageously and importantly saying these things you know similarly like don't make assumptions about why people do or don't have children what their circumstances are and don't ever ever (laughs) place your opinion or pressure on when you think someone should do something because you just have no idea but I think that's what you're saying is also highlighting the other side of that which is not just about awareness that it happens but yes awareness of um, struggles that are not seen and struggles that are still not talked about and and that people might not want to talk about, but that doesn't mean they're not carrying it, you know. No. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not and it's not saying that people shouldn't take the joy of posting baby photos, of sharing that joy with people, because of course you have the right to do that. And I I've got a real pet peeve about like the, the be kind movement, oh. which I'm like, kindness is not an absolute. No. You you're being kind to yourself by sharing your baby photo. You might be being unkind to someone who's just lost a baby you cannot guarantee what is the kind action in any given thing so be kind doesn't mean anything Hmm. I believe nearly everyone is innately kind I don't think it's fair to say to people you mustn't share these things because consider all the people it'll hurt 
um, they it's hurtful. It's hurtful to for them to not share it. I think it's just the awareness, isn't it? It's just if I ever have a baby in my head, I will post baby photos mm-hmm. to some people in some places. And as I do it, I'll think I'm so sad that this will probably cause hurt to some of these people. It's sort of unavoidable, but I do think that the awareness helps. Yeah, I think there's only so much responsibility anyone can have about what we do. And I think that's where the taking care, how you word things, but we can't be responsible for every single person. So if that post makes me feel really sad, I'm going to acknowledge it makes me feel really shit and unfollow that thing and not feel guilty about not following my friend's baby journey because I don't want to see it but I think that takes like years of really good therapy I I was gonna tell you guys ever since we ever since we booked this uh podcast what's been in my head to tell you is that Mm. when I went for therapy two years ago and it was it was at a time in my life it was it was after all the mash report stuff happened after a year of that and it had been really building up and building up all the pressure and everything. Uh, and it was the year when everything went crazy. I did Live at the Apollo, I did Not the Week, all in the same year. First big UK tour. It was all the same year, in fact, the same three months that I met my now husband, moved house, acquired two stepchildren. Um, it was the most insane change. Yeah. And I was also uprooted. And basically, I had a bit of a mental breakdown and I had therapy. And nearly every single therapy session, I would talk very eloquently about how I was feeling and I'd say well I think that I feel like I've got a lot of control there and I think I feel frustrated there Um, and I think I feel a bit sad about this and my therapist would go so by frustrated you mean angry and I'd be like yeah I suppose angry yeah sure we can say angry Uh, and she'd be like so when you say you feel powerless you mean you felt angry about that and I'd be like yeah I suppose angry is the word there yeah and every (laughs) session was basically me saying I felt angry for a year I felt so angry and I haven't said the word angry for all of that time I just kept using other words to describe how I was feeling and what I could not articulate was I'm angry I'm angry about this. I was was, it su- was so that surprising angry. to you then when, when your therapist was pointing you back and back towards anger? Was that a revelation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really was. Like the first, the first time it happened was like, oh, I suppose this week we explored my anger. <laughs> and then every other week. And then it happened every week. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I, I, I'm, really, I'm really glad I'm in therapy. <laughs> I obviously have, obviously have a lot to work through. And so I think that all of that therapy that I had for months was about me confronting what it is for me to be angry, what Mm. that looks like and how little I've been capable of acknowledging it. It's messy. It's such a messy, (laughs) it's such a messy emotion. Therapy is messy because often you can't articulate that. I don't often have the words, but I do the personal work and I read the books and I study and I make it almost a part of my career to understand. (laughs) So when I come in and I go, hey, listen, Uh, this book that I read or this article, these people that I spoke to told me that actually this is this thing um you know so I have to really actively get the get the psychology behind it which I become obsessed with um and then somebody will just say yeah but it's it's anger and we and where are you now with understanding so you've kind of let that in (laughs) to more of your sessions being like maybe this is (laughs) the repressed anger of 30 odd years are you able to acknowledge that I use the word I literally use the word more in conversations uh, in our relationship, in our family, and in talks about, you know, uh, equality. And it really helps, I think, to say that word. And it really is a word I don't think I had. I, I use euphemisms, I use frustrated hmm. a lot and similar things. And I think to say, I feel angry about that. And I, I still haven't, I haven't got to the place where I'm able to show it, really. Hmm. I'm still not able to shout or do anything like that. But I am able to, most of the time, when I do feel it, to say, yeah, that makes me angry. And that's that's quite a huge step for me to acknowledge it myself. Yeah, that is huge. What would happen if you showed it or you said it? I have no idea. <laughs> like, I can't wait for the day when I shout. <laughs> I, I literally don't know what that sounds like. I don't know what my shouting voice sounds like. Oh. Um, and I, I think because when I get to that point that's when I cry. Mm, so I mm. think when I when I get to the point where other people might shout, I cry. Yeah. And so I'm curious, when will this day be? <laughs> <When> <laughs> this magical thing. When we did this week. I know when it happens. I know when it happens. <laughs> I will. I'll send you, I'll send you yeah. a text. 
I've had moments, and again, I would say it's significant that I think this has only happened in the last two years of really letting it out, and it's only ever in private, yeah. where I have, um, I've gone on what we, me and my husband now refer to as my rage walk, <gasps> where it was when I was pregnant, and I was so angry and upset and so angry, and I was trying to show how angry I was around the house by going like this. <laughs> And no one was taking any notice. And so I, without saying a word, walked out the door, slammed the door and just tears down my face, just walked out and just going, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, uh, down the street. Like a man, if anyone had seen me, they'd have been like, it's the woman with the lizard that sits (laughs) on (laughs) the The sweaty woman with the lizard and shorts. Oh, there she is. Um, I just sat and I just found somewhere. I just sat on a wall, cried, swore a lot, and me and my husband ended up having a really heart to heart like text conversation while I was out and sort of <laughs> solved it. And I came home and I was like, hello. Um, and I've also come upstairs and screamed and punched pillows and screamed mm. and punched pillows. I think that's a very trad bit of. Uh, anger but I, I can do it in, i can do it in private but it, it 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 helps i think sometimes that thing of like being able to go off and feel what you're feeling and then to communicate by text even with your partner or you know what i mean like there's yeah. something really helpful in that quite often is that like you're yeah. feeling the thing separately from the communication of the thing because you can take the time and write it down and you can sit with it on your own and decide what you're going to say instead of yeah. being kind of caught up in a a conversation or an argument without being able to it's that thing again where if the articulation if the articulateness takes over or the like the cerebral nature of of explaining how mm. you feel can sometimes stop you from actually feeling how you feel taking those times where you just go off and be by yourself and, yeah. and allow yourself to be without having to explain yourself to anybody unless you can and unless you want yeah. to is so important. I think it's the equivalent of like baby's rage screaming when it's a scream that is I need your attention <laughs> I need your attention mm. desperately yeah. and I think that that rage walk occasion was the I think probably the angriest most, most upset like mm. the angriest I've ever been in the moment mm. uh, and I felt it I think it's one of the few times when I really felt it bubbling up you know people talk about bubbling yeah. up and I don't yeah. think I've felt that I've always felt kind of a bit more of this kind of like it's just not the very physical feeling of it coming up your gullet and I was I knew that if I had to show something and it would either be throwing something across the room which I try to remember if I did that as well or if I just did my passive aggressive putting things down in a loud way I think I might have thrown something small but the the slamming of the walking out and slamming of the door achieved with hindsight what it was meant to achieve which was literally a a cry for help an angry cry for help we think having a heart-to-heart articulate conversation i you know with eye contact is the way that we diffuse things yeah but not always no (laughs) when you're frustrated or upset about something talk to people the way you would normally talk to people if it is via text in that moment because you want to just articulate something do it that way you don't have to sit down in a very calm comforting manner and give each other eyeball contact with each other and say this is exactly, this is upsetting me because it doesn't always help. I love, by the way, putting Glorious. things down loudly. I do that a lot. And also, I hate when it's done to me. I can't bear it. I, I do it and I feel when I'm doing it that in that same way. The reason you're doing it really is because you want someone to turn yeah. around and go, oh, you know, what's up? Are you all right? You know, you're obviously not okay. <laughs> and, it, and it never gets that reaction. As if you putting things down, they're going to go, Oh, I sense that you're. Yeah. Okay. Should we That's talk? What I do. Yeah. It's and never going to get that reaction. They're like, "Why are you being yeah. such a huffy bitch? What's going on?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or it's ignored because yeah, they yeah, yeah. like yeah. they might know that something's <laughs> happening. So you're, and they'll be like, "I know something's happening, and I don't want to go towards it." I'm backing away. I am backing the fuck away from this. <laughs> but I feel it on the other side when I when I'm in a circumstance where somebody is passive aggressively cleaning. That's my worst. Like I'm just. Oh, I'm so. I hate. Immediately, so uncomfortable, like (laughs) wringing my hands with with like apprehensive guilt. Like I'm guilty for something that hasn't happened yet, just in case, because I'm like, oh god, what do I? How do I deal with it? And I don't. You have I have conversations. I have fictional conversations imagined with that person in my head about passive aggressive cleaning, where I'm like, this is your choice. I'm not helping you because this is your choice to do it, and this isn't the time that I would choose to clean. But you're choosing to clean now. Yeah. 
and you're forcing them you're to bad. feel guilty yeah. by yeah. doing it now. Yeah, and you know what? You've cleaned the flat. So regardless, <laughs> it happened. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for this. No problem. It's been no an problem. absolute pleasure. And I'm definitely going to take a rage walk for... Um, oh, I, I think I'm going to try it next time. I, I love... recommend it so thoroughly, but you have to preempt it by putting things down. <laughs> and a big door slam otherwise. And I like the thing that when you were describing that the fuck you kind of goes with the footsteps, like, fuck you, fuck you. Yeah, I can already feel how helpful that is. It's like this rhythm. What I'll do, I'll issue a manual yes, about if it, you so could. everyone knows that. <laughs> of course you um, would, Rachel. Of course you'd write a manual for it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Classic, classic Paris. <laughs> what do we normally do at the end of an episode? Ah, uh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Rachel Paris. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. You can catch Rachel and her husband, Marcus, on Always Be Comedy for their Tuesday Night Club, for which they have recently won a Chortle Award entitled Legends of Lockdown. That's a great award to it get, isn't really it? It really is. You can, of course, follow Rachel on Instagram, Twitter, and probably everywhere else. So we'll link to her <laughs> social media profile. Everywhere else. You could find everywhere. her on Google. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> You can tweet the show using the hashtag LividPodcast or follow us on Instagram at LividPodcast and share what makes you furious. Livid is brought to you by Playwell with music by Ishani Perimpanayagam. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.